If this is your first time here, welcome. During our shows, we interview successful entrepreneurs and investors to spread knowledge, advice, and actionable tactics to help others in the pursuit of financial freedom. We discuss successes, failures, systems, motivations, experiences, and key lessons learned along the way in the hopes that these stories help you along your journey. Tune in every Wednesday to get your weekly juice. If you've been here before and like what you've been hearing, please subscribe, share with friends, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That goes an extremely long way for us. It's simple. Just click on your podcast app, type in our podcast name, The Weekly Juice, click on the reviews, and let us know what you think. The more ratings we get, the more eyes we'll get on our show, and in turn, we'll be able to provide you all with high-quality guests. You can also find us on Instagram, at Weekly Juice Pod, for daily content and personal finance tips to assist in your journey towards financial freedom. Welcome back to the Weekly Juice. As always, it is your boys, Ryan and Corey here with another episode for you. Today, we have a special episode put together for you. Um, this is going to be a best of 2021. So first off, we wanted to say thank you for the support from our guests, from our listeners, to everyone involved with the Weekly Juice uh, behind the scenes, in front of the scenes. We are just so thrilled that you could all be a part of it. And um, you know, we originally started the show to be authentic and sharing our journey with people that um, you know, you can do it too. If we can put it together, we can start investing and build our portfolio and network with very, very successful individuals. You can as well. And with this episode, we decided to compile a list of 10 to 15 minute clips of some of our top episodes from the year. So you can pull some golden nuggets away, go back, re-listen. Maybe it'll spark an interest to go back to a previous episode and really dive all in, but thrilled to provide this to you. And it's as a thank you to, and essentially for their support for the year. Yeah, man, we're really, uh, we're just humbled and we're just so appreciative of like the outpouring of support that we've got from everybody, how willing guests are to come on and chat with us, how willing people are to listen. Just the growth of 2021 for us is like super exciting. So for this episode, we have, like Ryan mentioned, like six or seven clips from some of our best episodes. And we tried to pull like the best tangible nuggets of information or wisdom for thought, like thought provoking type things. Uh, and these ones will really hopefully get your 2022 off to a really good start. And they're, you know, kind of some golden nuggets for you. And not only that, but I was thinking back to kind of us starting the show and we just, we're going to continue to be ourselves, be authentic, be, be transparent and kind of walk everyone through our journey. And we're hoping by doing that and continue to do that as we start to grow, hopefully people who grow along with us, we're going to show you the good, the bad, the ugly, continue to do that. Um, and again, just be ourselves. And I think that's, that's hopefully providing a lot of value to our audience and along the way, really. With that, let's take a dive into some of our best clips and highlights from 2021. Episode 68 with Mark Jones from Living Rent Free. Yeah, man, it's just it's been it's just been an insane ride. It's been a great ride to be able to live in my my city, LA, um, and live for free and see. I want to talk about this because yeah. <laughs> you have this uh, ability to because you're from the area, you've learned the market, you understand it. And there's right. so much value in the fact that you grew up there that you said this is coming in here. You've almost done research by osmosis just by living there, yep. like you know yep. what's happening. You know, if you invest, this is just I'm playing devil's advocate on both sides of this. I know people that make a lot of money investing in 
Indiana. We just talked to Jared. He invested in Indiana. I know a lot of people that make money in North Carolina, the Midwest, Missouri, wherever. But to to get $250,000 of equity in 18 months in some of these areas where you buy $80,000 properties, that ain't happening. It's just not happening. So there's there's a lot of value in understanding a market. Now, maybe they really understand that market and that's their competitive advantage. You had a competitive advantage of really understanding your market and it took you one property to get $250,000 of equity where for us, we invest in a couple areas like maybe C plus, B minus. The, you know, it would take seven or eight of those properties to get $250,000 in that time frame, right? It's a hard argument. In a good market. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a hard balance, right? I'm just thinking like the seesaw here, like you have appreciation and cash flow, and like yep. it depends on who you are and your situation. What you, exactly what you said, Mark, like you did, you took the appreciation play, but not really a gamble because you know the area is coming up. Like it's, it's a calculated risk, put it that way. There's other people that are just going to, they'll go invest in, in, uh, a fourplex for $50,000 in Bumble, Cleveland, and they're going to have the worst tenants ever potentially. And ne- the rent, maybe they're not even going to collect the rent. They see the cash flow, the number that you could potentially get. Good luck managing that and getting a property right. manager to manage that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, it's, it's funny. Corey and I have been, have been business planning and talking about this. Like we want a couple hitters, like the cash flow play guys, right? Like the, the $175,000 property cash flow is about eight to a thousand bucks. Great. You have a bunch, couple yeah. of those bad boys. Let's mm-hmm. go. And yep. then you're going to get a couple like yours potentially, mm-hmm. right? You got to find the right pocket. Mm-hmm. And we, we've been debating, Hey, do we, we've been meeting a lot of people similar to you, not yep. 50,000 people, about 10. I'm just, just playing, but like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it's never going to round. Right. And then it's funny. Deals come up and people yep. are like, Hey, what do you think? And so my question to you is, I know you're our LA guy, but would you ever consider investing out of state? And like, what recommendations would you have for people when, when they're getting floating deals like this? And like, do you want to have your portfolio in a bunch of different spots? Right. Yeah, man. So it's, it's interesting. It's a, you, you, you covered a lot of stuff that I kind of want to talk about. But one of the first things I want to say is like, I have a friend, his name is James Allen. He's, he has a YouTube channel and he's on Instagram. He's building it up. But we met years ago. And he's called the out-of-state investor. That's his handle. But he he built up a million-dollar portfolio in Decatur. I think he has like one property there, but all in um, Knoxville, Tennessee. Yep. And so his play is, I'm trying to quit my job like ASAP. I want the FI by real estate investing ASAP. So um, he saw some appreciation, nothing crazy. But what he did was he understood that there's two different types of markets. I guess you could say three, but... There's two different types of markets. There's an appreciation market, there's a cash flow market, and then there's a little mix in between the two. And so knowing that and giving like response to your question, uh, Ryan, to anybody who wants to invest in real estate, know what you're trying to do long-term uh, and, in, and in the short term. So for me, I actually did do cash flow um, because I eliminated my rent. Here, I would have to pay like two, two grand for an apartment like mine, and I don't have to pay for it. So it's kind of like immediately I got two grand, immediately I got 24,000 a year, plus I'm going to get rich from, from the property and or wealthier through appreciation uh, in the long term. But um, by meeting people, a lot of people have come to me, my, my main person being Lauren, who said, hey, Mark, we can't make cash flow. We can't get great returns here in LA. Let's pull money together and go out of state. Um, and so I am 100% about it. I'm really busy right now. And so I, I've been telling her, I think we need to like hold off a little bit before making that play. But so many people have sent me deals, man, um, from the Midwest, 
um, to the South, um, Utah, uh, just all over Wisconsin, Indiana, Chicago. And I guess now I'm patient because I see all the opportunity. I'm like, let me just wait. And, and they're, they're going to be there and the money's going to be there. So let me just wait and build it up. Like but, um, but yeah, bro, like the cash flow is, is king, man, because cash flow gives you freedom. My appreciation is not going to give me freedom. Let me get it clear. It's just long term. I know I'm going to be bulletproof. But in the short term, I can't just quit jobs or stop working because I don't have any cash flow. Yeah, so, but but that being said, eliminating tw- or $24,000 a year, let's just throw that number out there as the, the money that you're saving from not from not having to pay rent. You said that you can't ask your your um, boss for a raise. Not only that, but that's $24,000 a year. You have to make probably thirty-five dollars to $38,000 a year or more. So it's not just asking for a raise. You're going and changing your life to try to make that money, right? And it it's just... It's amazing if people just want to spend, let's just say you you say, I am going to take the next five to eight years and I'm going to house hack for that time frame. Mm-hmm. And you can on average $24,000 a year. If you do the math in five years, you're at 100 grand. In eight years, you're at 150, 160 grand. And that invested in 15 years from now, from then you're talking hundreds and th- hundreds and hundreds of thousand dollars, potentially millions of dollars. So you don't have to be this big real estate investor to do all this. You can just say, I'm going to sacrifice for five to eight years in house hack and, and take that money that I would be spending on rent or mortgage and then go invest it elsewhere. It's hands down. If you're, if you just graduated from school, I'm just saying this from me, like, you know, I know not everybody goes to college, whatever, it's fine. But like from my experience and we know it's, it's the norm. I won't lie. Like the norm of society today, a lot of people go to college. So like when you graduate, there's this, this in-between period when you're just first getting your job and you're like trying to find roommates to live in that new city. And like to, to not know about house hacking, which I didn't back then sucks horribly <laughs> and i'm like but this guy figured it out and it's kind of cool and you guy Corey, our guy good guy that's why our partners you got luck fun because someone's smarter than you it's great <laughs> but um no for real I, I basically just a recommendation for people like don't go spend you're gonna spend two thousand dollars just to live in a cool place in center city or in, in new york or in la just to feel cool and feel like you're making money when you first get a taste of making money save up some dough Live with your parents if you can, if you're living in the same city, save up some dough, put a down payment on a multifamily, live in one unit, rent out the other, call it a day. You're then all the rest, you're saving, pump it to index funds, pump it to your savings, yep. Yep. or you just live. You know what I mean? Like you're talking about living this going up at the same speed. You don't have to sacrifice everything. Once yep. you have that huge chunk, what's it? Food, car, or transportation, and housing. Those housing. are the three big, mm-hmm. big ones. You can yep. eliminate one of those, and then maybe you live close enough to work, you don't have to drive. Great. You're paying for food. Yeah. You get to a certain age where you kind of realize that like your it's the status of driving a super nice car. It kind of, it kind of fades in a way. And like, if you have an abundance of money, it's a great thing. And then you're, right. then you really have that freedom that we all kind of want But yeah. there's these years of 20 to 35 for us. It works right. differently for everybody. There's these years where we're saying like, it doesn't mean that much to me. I bought a Mercedes when I was 22. And now, and then I realized a couple of years later, I was like, it doesn't mean that much to me to have this. I'd much rather have the time freedom. And that's exactly what you teach. Um, yeah. And he made me sell mine on Saturday. So he literally <laughs> sold his. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you sold your bins? Yeah. So welcome. Long yeah. story, long, man. But he's in his Nissan. So. so your boy's got the Maximus Gordon. <laughs> It's, it's actually fire. It, it, it kind of are pretty cool though. Yeah, dude, it's cool. fine. If I had to switch, I'm like, all right, the thing rips. Got a V6 yeah. in it, but like, I, I, it hurt, dude. It, but I'm preaching all the stuff. It's not, I'm it's like, not nah, a I'm done. 
Yeah, but but something else I was just thinking about when, when Corey was talking is like, if you do want to expand the portfolio, say you do want to use portfolio, because I know I know a couple of my students who are buying like have bought multiple uh, four units like after learning about the first one. It's a stamp of credibility, right? You're you've been a landlord. Um, you have the discipline to save up money for the down payment. You have the business acumen to run the whole four unit as as a business, right? So now when you're looking for partners, you're trying to expand and build that portfolio, people are going to look at you as official, right? As a, you know, bona fide real estate investor. And you have to realize that like, I have like, so I have a dentist uh, client now who, you know, makes plenty of money. Him and his wife have a practice. They don't know anything about real estate, but they have a lot of money to invest in real estate. So just you owning that one property and connecting with somebody that has that money, but not that knowledge, and that experience that could be golden for you to start building like a, a huge portfolio or a larger portfolio. Episode 50 with David Green. You didn't even really know that much about real estate investing clearly when you, who does when they first start. Right. Yeah. But how did you take that experience and then turn it into, okay, I'm going to keep doing this and do more of it. <laughs> well, it was terrible. I would have sold the house if I could. I was just stuck with it. I, it. It hadn't gone up enough that I could sell it. So I put it back on Craigslist and I did everything again that I had done the first time. I didn't check anyone's credit. I took an application and was like, oh, this person looks good. I was really busy with my new law enforcement career. So I really wasn't paying any attention to what was going on with the property. And I was showing the house to somebody that had wanted to see it online. And they mentioned that they had a property manager. And I said, Oh, what's that? Oh, it's this person that helps you find rentals and then manages it for you. They told, he told me I should come take a look at this property. So here we are. And I said, Oh, can I get their phone number? And they said, yes. And I called the guy and he was a terrible property manager, but even with a terrible one, it was a bazillion times easier than what I had been doing. And I'm like, man, I was trying to save, you know, the hundred bucks a month or 150 bucks a month. And I lost thousands and thousands of dollars trying to do that. So once I had a property manager, it was like, this is easy. They just send me the check and I just wait next year. The rent will go up and it did. And then I didn't hate real estate investing as much. Cause I was making 300 bucks a month. Now I'm making 400 bucks and it doesn't take much to realize in five years, I'm probably going to be making 900 bucks. This is cool. And my mom calls me and says, Hey, there's a house down the street from where we live and it's vacant. There's a bunch of kids skating in the pool in the backyard. That's empty. Do you want to go take a look? So I did. And I thought, well, it's close to my mom. Maybe I'll just live in this one instead and keep running the other one out. So I bought that house and now I had a property management company. So I wasn't as scared about making mistakes. I let them take it over. I had two properties, uh, the third year, unfortunately, my grandmother passed away and the family was going to sell the house. And I said, well, let's just get an appraisal and I'll just buy it for whatever it appraises for. So now I have three houses and I guess, I guess I'm a real estate investor. I just, I own property. I had no intention of doing it. I just, at that point identified as a real estate investor. And so now when stuff would hit the market, I'd be looking online and I would be talking to people about real estate. And I just slowly kind of started from there. How did your brains then switch to like financial independence? Like how that you knew that this was going to be a really good thing for you because you fell into it kind of you all of a sudden you have three and now it's like, when did you say, Oh no, this is really going to work. Like I, I'm really going to build wealth doing this. I was really afraid at the time of not being able to make the mortgage. In fact, every time I bought a house, it created more anxiety because all I could think of is what happens if I don't have a tenant. So it was, it was actually hard to get momentum going because everything inside me was saying, don't do it. And I, and I was sitting down one day 
and I was looking at, okay, if, if all my houses are vacant all at the same time for a whole year, this is how much it's going to cost me. I got to have at least that much money in the bank just ridiculous type of thinking. And I noticed that my, I needed to update the rents that were on. Like, I think I just used to track it in my iPhone notes app. I didn't even have a spreadsheet. I didn't know how to use spreadsheets at that time. And I noticed that the rents needed to be updated that it had originally been like 1100 and now it was 1400 or maybe 15. And there was something that clicked that I just thought that's kind of a big increase for only two years. How did the rents go up that much? We're not even in a good economy. And then I bought a fourplex shortly after that. And I bought it at $700 a, a, uh, for rent on each unit. And immediately we came like 800 or 850. As soon as I bought it, I could bump the rents up. And then next year, every one of them went up by a hundred dollars. And I, I realized this exponential, I'm not just going up a hundred, I'm going up 400 a year In five years. That's $2,000. That's a paycheck that I'm getting as a yes. deputy sheriff just from this. And those two components that rents go up faster than what I thought mixed with more doors equals that happening even faster. And my mind switched from, Oh man, I got to be ready to pay for a vacancy at any given time into, I need more of these because I can get more of that passive income coming in. And I noticed that, you know, as a, as a police officer, the only way you make more money is you work more overtime. It's a very clear correlation between time and money. It's, there's no confusion there. And I was working a lot of overtime, but I could tell I'm not going to want to do this when I'm 30 or 35 or, or 40. This is my way out. And that was all that I really needed. Once I saw this is something that can be repeated and replicated and you can keep doing it. I knew this is what I wanted to do. It's a really cool story because there's this thought here about somebody like you. That's like, Oh, I'm sure David had it all figured out at the beginning, right? How could he possibly get to where he is unless he went in and had it all figured out? And a lot of people are so scared to even start. Yeah. They have to have the LLC. They got to have all their button buttoned up and look at how far you've come by starting by accident. Right? So it, it, it's kind of a testament to just doing it, learning, making shifts, and then continuing on. Right. Well, that's what I learned. Um, in fact, I probably wouldn't have done it if it wouldn't have been on accident. And then many things since then, I've also sort of accidentally gotten involved with them. And really there's a pattern you can recognize. Fear will keep you from taking action. If you can fall into it backwards or get somebody else to introduce you to it, kind of break the ice, almost everything that you get into isn't nearly as scary as what you thought. And you know, you'd asked me a question earlier, like, well, what makes David tick? The, the real reality of what drives me a lot of the time to go start a new business or start a new venture is as simple as the frustration that I'm feeling from somebody else not doing it well. So I would be referring my friends to real estate agents. And then the friends would come back to me and say, the agent didn't tell me this, or they're not telling me that they want me to write over asking price. I don't get why I have to. My friend didn't write over asking price. You sent me to a bad agent and I would go tell the agent and they would tell me why and it would make sense. And there was no communication between the two of them. And I just got tired of real estate agents that didn't help me when I was investing or didn't help the people that I was referring them to. So I said, screw it. I'll go become an agent. And then, you know, I started a mortgage company recently. That was really just from getting tired of the lender, not calling back my clients and saying, well, I can't control what they do. But if I had my own company, I could control what happens. And the systems that I create when it comes to investing, like the long distance stuff was frustration that re California real estate got too expensive. I just couldn't buy real estate here anymore. So I went to another state and did it. 
And then working hundred hours a week as a cop was really hard. And I knew that as the only way that I could buy property until I figured out the burr method. And that mostly came because I was tired and frustrated from working hundred hours a week. So as odd as it sounds, almost every success I've had has been driven by frustration at not liking how life is currently going. And maybe that frustration was more powerful to me than the fear of what could go wrong. Episode 80 with Savannah Arroyo from the Net Worth Nurse. Ryan and I always talk about this. We're like, at a certain point, we want to be as, as passive as possible. Real That's estate is a passive game. <laughs> right now, it's not passive for us because we're right. building our own portfolio. It's really yes. not passive at all. What's passive is getting a check every month, but the work that goes into that, it's not passive, right? Yeah. So like if somebody invests $50,000 with you, what is a typical, and you don't have to go into full detail, but like what's a typical pitch deck of saying like, you, you know, it sounds like you're paying out cash flow to them. What do you typically tell uh, an investor who's interested in investing with you that they can see as a return? And I know it varies. But. Kind of off that. So like, yeah. let's just say it doesn't have to be 50,000. Let's just, if you could give us a specific deal, like, yeah. hey, yeah. maybe it's your most recent deal. And if you're comfortable sharing, just like, what did you pitch to your friends and family? How much would they need to deploy? And then what cash flow are they seeing per month? And then also with that, are they in it for the long haul with you or can they get out if they would like, like, how's that contract work? Yeah. So, um, when you start looking at multifamily syndication deals, the numbers that operators are getting are, are pretty similar. So we're really looking to achieve a two X multiple. So doubling our investors money within a three to five year period. Um, and then with that, we're looking at a 15 to 20% AAR average annualized return aiming for seven to nine, maybe 10% cash flow cash on cash return and really like a 15, 18, maybe 20% IRR internal rate of return. So with my investors, so looking for over hundred percent return on investment at year five. So really how it works is if someone were to invest $50,000 for us and we break it down into our projected investment. So when you attend one of our deal opportunities, you see exactly how much cash is going to be projected to you on a yearly basis. So $50,000 um, mark, we're looking at, um, depending on the deal, because if it's a high value add deal, you're not generating a lot of cash flow in year one, because you're working to stabilize the building, which is what we're doing most of the time. We're out targeting buildings that are by mismanaged owners, usually elderly owners. They have out of control expenses. Their um, rents are way below market value. And we're going, and there's so much value add in these deals. And we're going and buying these apartment complexes and pretty much flipping them over a five-year period. We're going in there, decreasing expenses. Like for example, on one of our last buildings, the water expenses, when we were looking at the numbers, were like double, triple what they should be. We went and walked that building Every unit we walked into, faucets were leaking, dripping, just out of control. We went in there, implemented a water conservation, new plumbing for that whole building, drastically dropped those expenses. We took care of a roof, some other maintenance items, and now we're increasing rents because they were like 15% below market value. And it adds huge, huge value just by decreasing expenses, increasing income. That's how we're generating returns for our investors. So depending on how heavy the value add deal is, from the beginning, the cash flow can't maybe like 1500, maybe 2000 for the first year, but then targeting and it will increase and then averaged out the lifetime and the investments about like seven and nine, 10%. Um, so that's kind of the returns that we're projecting. 
once an investor gets in the deal, they're in it. I mean, there's, they're legally bound to be in it. I mean, I've had situations where investors have had to pull out and I can replace them um, really because maybe it's, it's someone that had a personal issue, you know, stuff going on, they needed the money. And so I was able to get another investor in there. There's a lot of legalities behind it. So we really do tell investors that their money is tied into the deal for five years and that's legally bound in the contract as well. Got it. Got it. Very cool. I, I think it would be cool now knowing how your deals are structured, maybe if you would walk us through whether it's your most lucrative deal or your favorite deal, I know you, you, you've done a lot recently. Um, maybe if you could just break down like, you know, who invested and where you pulled the money from and kind of the top line purchase, what you think it's going to be worth after cash flow, et cetera. If you have a deal in mind that, uh, You'd like to yeah, share. yeah, definitely. So, um, kind of the the building I was just talking about with the out of control water expenses. So that's a twenty four unit that we purchased up in Oregon. It was um, one point eight million, I believe. Um, I raised total about like six hundred, seven hundred thousand for that. And, um, we're going in implementing a huge water conservation program. Um, we are replacing the roof on that building that had a lot of huge maintenance items. So the previous owner was going out and patching it like every month, spending like a couple grand on it. So we went in, replaced the whole roof. Um, we actually got a credit from the seller for that roof. So that goes into kind of negotiating when you go through the walkthrough because our broker didn't tell us that roof needed to be replaced. And so when we showed up at the building and looked at the roof and our contractor was like, Oh, this roof is bad. You need to have it replaced. We didn't have that calculated into our numbers. And that's like a, $60,000, you know, yeah. bill. So we're like, okay, then this deal is not going to work if, if that's the case. And so we were able to negotiate a credit from the seller so that we could still make the deal work. Um, which goes to show there's just like a lot of wiggle room in real estate. The numbers can be kind of changed according to how you're negotiating what you think you're going to be able to do. So the rents on that building, I think we're like about 15% below market. So we're steadily increasing them every year up in Oregon. You can increase rents, um, 9.1% year over year, which is really aggressive in multifamily but we were able to do that year one. And that was during COVID because they were so below market value. Um, we had everyone stay, we've had to evict one person, um, from that building. So it just kind of goes to show that some of these buildings out there are just poorly, poorly managed by the seller. They had, they rented out a unit to a guy who didn't put down a deposit and not once paid rent. And during the COVID period, and it was fine because, you know, the, the tenants were protect, protected during COVID, but then as some of that stuff got lifted up and when our property management team went in and checked out the building, he had damaged so much stuff and in, in the unit that we were able to evict him based on that. Um, and so that, that unit alone was like 27% below market value. We did a quick renovation on it and now we jacked rents up 27% on that one unit. And that adds huge, huge value to our numbers. So we were able to actually give our investors in first quarter more than we were originally anticipating just because of little things like that. Like that's one unit that can create that much power. Um, going in and kind of like 
changing out different contracting services like pest control or landscaping. Um, so working with the property management team, who's really good about kind of looking at those contract services and make sure that they're kind of on par with what is expected in the area. Yeah. And then the raise. So raising money was, uh, from a lot of family and friends referrals. I had a couple repeat investors in this deal. Um, really just kind of talking to people about what we're doing through my brand, the net worth nurse and what I'm doing on social media. A lot of people will, I'm just really transparent with everything we do. I share a lot of numbers on our deals and kind of like my journey and the behind the scenes look. And so people kind of feel like they, you know, get to know me and get to see kind of how I'm running these buildings. And so, um, I, hop on calls with investors and kind of let them know what, what we're working on currently and what deals we have in the pipeline. And then they just kind of like wait on hold or on standby until we get a, a next deal. That's awesome. Yeah. That, yeah, it's really cool. I think, um, just hearing how the deals put together is really interesting to me. And we've interviewed so many investors on here and, and I forget, uh, was it maybe it was Jarrett from Chicago mentioned that he was buying a 16 unit deal. And I think that the utilities alone pushed his cash flow number, changing the utilities or something, or redoing the entire utilities pushes cash flow number from like $3,500 a month to like over five grand a month. So there's these little things that maybe investors that have owned it for so long, maybe it's paid off. Maybe they just don't care. There's a lot of reasons why they, they wouldn't have looked at that for a new yeah. investor coming in. That's why we love real estate because it's cyclical and like there's always room for more people to come in and improve. Um, so I, I just think that's a that's really cool. Episode forty five with Shung from Save My Sense. I kind of want to talk strategy a little bit here too because um, you, it sounds like I understand how you created your income. Uh, through investing and that you're drawing back on it. But can you talk about the balance between investing and paying off debt and maybe mm -hmm. what your overall strategy would be? There are some people that say, i.e. Dave Ramsey, that you shouldn't invest or do anything until you pay off all your debt. I don't, tip, I don't agree with that, but I'm curious what your stance is. Yeah. My husband and I talk about this coverage, uh, this concept called leverage debt can be leveraged. And as real estate investors, you guys are probably already actively doing that. I, I don't know if you bought all of your properties nope. all cash. Probably not, right? You took out <laughs> some yet. mortgage on it. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> um, that's leverage because you know that this investment is going to generate you returns that are greater than the cost of financing that debt. That's called leverage. And the funny thing is both my husband and I in the management consulting industry, we actually... Um, we advise private equity clients. They're known as leverage buyout companies. What do they do? They buy companies, put on debt on that company, and then generate cash flow and then sell it out. That is what they do. So we learned that concept from them. I'll, I'll give it in very straight terms. My husband had, um, had some loans from college. Like he had a small amount that his scholarship didn't cover. Let's say that those student loans were at 4%. Then let's say that he took on another, um, call it you know, hundred thousand dollars of loans for business school. Business school loans, he got charged a higher interest rate at, call it seven percent. He did not actively spend his life paying down the college loans early because he's like, if my loans cost me four percent in interest, but I'm getting ten percent return on the market, why should I be in a hurry? to pay off those loans because I get a six, six point spread 
on the market, right? Mm -hmm. So in these situations, I often say, look at the interest rates on your loans. If you've already been paying your loans on time and you don't have capitalized interest, um, what I mean by that is some people kind of let their loans lapse a little bit or they're under certain income repayment programs, income-driven programs where the interest is actually growing, then that's different. But let's say you are an on-time uh, uh, strategy, you're paying back those loans and the loan interest rate is pretty low. I call it 5%, lower, less than 5%. I wouldn't be in a hurry to try to pay down those loans. I'd say you're in a good position to both pay off your debt and invest at the same time because the market returns more. But if your interest rates on your loans are 5% or greater, or you've let the loan lapse, um, then, then I would be a little bit more focused in at least getting rid of those debts. So when my husband and I married, we really focused on, okay, how do we get rid of this student loan debt from his business school? Because it was 7%. And we're like, let's just pay it off. Because if after you account for taxes and stuff, it's about the same return as um, the return on the market. Because you get 10% return on the market, but you still got to pay some taxes on it. So that's that's why we made the decision to pay off the, the, the student loans there early and then go back to investing. It's a really cool strategy. And we, we think of, we equate this to real estate investing too, where we've talked to a lot of people in the investing game who are highly leveraged. And what they say is if we, you know, interest rates are so low right now, we're getting a, an investment property loan at 3%. Mm -hmm. Why would we pay off the loan right now? Even we can't, but even in shorter time, why would we pay it off if that 3% is going to be paid down with cheaper dollars in the future even. So it's like mm -hmm. a really cool thought process for people out there that look at your interest loans or your interest on your loans and then determine whether or not you feel you can make a better return in the market and then base your decision off that. I, I, I love the advice. I think it's, I think it's really cool. It's interesting because you go, it's almost like a ping pong table. You go back and forth on deciding what you want to do. And one, on one day it'll be like, well, I just want to pay off all my debt as soon as possible and just get done with it. And then, then I can start investing. Then you're like, wait, what about compound interest and over time and how my money works for itself? Yeah. And it's just, I have a couple of people that ask me advice. They have, uh, here's one of, one of my colleagues, he has a 4% loan and then a 7% for, mm. so kind of a similar example to you. And I think I'm going to make him listen to this episode and, uh, adhere that advice and he, he should start today. I know the 7%, he should probably start tackling first, but he can invest at this moment and he shouldn't wait. Yeah, but it's also yeah. interesting, and I think uh, Sean can can maybe speak a little bit on this. If you're a if you are a doctor or a doctor, and you have two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars worth of student loans that you took out, and you're in a repayment program, does it sometimes make sense to stay in that program and not attack the debt just based on the fact that you're making maybe say you're making one fifty as a first time, you know, as a, as a new doctor and your loans are 300 grand, should you try to attack that debt where your income is not as high yearly as the debt is? Yeah. I guess it's strategy I, based on their, you know, everyone's tolerance, yeah. but I'm curious what your thoughts are. There, there is no perfect answer when it comes to uh, debt repayment. I, I respect Dave Ramsey for him understanding the psychology of people in mostly credit card debt, actually consumer debt. He understood right. that psychology and he understood that People need to get that out to feel freedom. But when we're talking about people with um, student, loan, student loans, it's a little bit of a different beast because you, it's almost an investment in yourself to get that higher income, right? What I have coached multiple people under different income-driven uh, payment plans. Some of them are actually in the public 
student loan forgiveness program where after, you know, making 120 payments and sticking with the job that qualifies you for it, the rest is completely forgiven without any tax implications. But there are others who might be in income driven programs where, yeah, your minimum payments are less now, but whatever gets forgiven, you still owe like a five figure tax bill on a six figure debt. Yeah, that's the balloon. Yeah, that's the, uh, yeah. the bomb, tax bomb. The bomb, sorry. Yeah. And people need to save up for that. And I've known of people who did it and then they have this IRS loan after paying off their student loan, which is horrible. Yeah, we we interviewed Lauren <laughs> Williams, who's like a, a a ta- or she's a student loan like financial planner and she talked a little bit about that and it surprised so many people yeah. that are actually in the program so 20 years from now you have to pay if you have two hundred thousand dollars you have to pay 60 grand or whatever it is it's scary so yeah i think these repayment programs lull people into a false sense of security because people just look at the minimum payment they're like oh it's it's so much lower than i expected i can totally do whatever else i want and i think If you have it and you need temporary relief, there is absolutely no shame in using this for that temporary relief. But there is a price to be paid, whether it is you being stuck in a job that qualifies you for these programs for 10 years, which is a really long time to commit to a single job or single industry, or it is making sure that whatever money you do end up saving, you're putting it to good use. Like, I would hope that you're establishing an emergency fund and that you're getting some savings going and you're living below your means. But I've also seen people who, who end up with really low student loan um, monthly payments and they just blow the rest of the money. And I think your strategy really has to be disciplined to say, okay, if I choose to take advantage of a program, am I prepared for the tax implications, if any? And then am I prepared if I decide to leave this program? Can I get my you know, my savings stuff to cover that? And is the money that I'm saving being productive or is it being spent on stuff that, you know, I didn't really mean to buy? So I think you mentioned this, like you talked about basics and you talked about um, emergency fund and savings account. I think people get overwhelmed when they realize how many different vehicles are out there to potentially invest in and like different avenues. And we, we had this analogy of uh, basically a table and you want to, add more legs to it essentially to have more income streams because if you not if you have a table with one leg you knock that leg out you have no income your your financial health is is in ruin so do you have almost like not a blueprint but just a basic mm-hmm. set of whether it's accounts or vehicles that you yeah. recommend someone start with to say like hey listen like here's how to enhance your overall financial health starting out and then you can always add more as you go along absolutely Number one, before you do anything, even before you pay off debt, is get an emergency fund, which is hard because it's hard to see the cash sitting there. You can't touch it for your credit card loans. You can't touch it to go start investing. But as COVID has proved to all of us, it is absolutely devastating to be without income for even a month at a time. So you need that emergency because we just don't know if another pandemic, God forbid, is going to hit us or, or something close to that. So I always say get that emergency fund going three to six months of, of bills uh, in an ideal scenario. But even one month breaks you of the paycheck to paycheck mentality. OK, you got that next part. OK, assuming you are debt free now, because we can talk about debt all day long, but let's not focus on debt. Assuming you're debt free or you're ready to invest. The first thing I like to do is use 
an employer-sponsored plan, like a 401k, 403, 457, TSP. Why? Because it's automatic. You don't feel the pain as much when you never see that money hit your bank account. Um, the reason why I recommend that is if you do start to open an IRA today, you have to actively save up the money to move to the IRA. And it's very tempting, again, to spend the money. So I want to take it off the top. Once you've maxed out, uh, maxing out means contributing $19,500 in tax year 2021 to the employer-sponsored plan, then I would move to either a traditional or Roth IRA. A ton of people freeze right here and they say, which one, traditional or Roth? You'll figure that out. There is no right answer. I say just toss a coin and pick one right now. You'll figure it out later. Open a Roth IRA. If you happen to make enough money, you still exceed that, then we can move to some more sophisticated instruments like if you have a health savings plan, a health savings account, I recommend that. Then um, a taxable brokerage, which is anybody can open, anyone can withdraw from at any time. Then beyond that, if you have children, there are other ways to save for their education, like the 529s and, and et cetera. But to re recap, emergency fund in cash in a high yield online savings account, followed by employer sponsored account because you want that automatic off the top. Then followed by a traditional or Roth IRA, toss a coin if you can't pick. Then followed by a health savings account if you have one or moving to a taxable brokerage. Episode 65 with Michael Zuber. I know you transitioned from single family into multifamily. Yep. Can you talk about the difference? Because a lot of people, or how you feel about the difference between the two types of properties, because a lot of people just starting out, they're like, well, hey, should I go the single family route? Should I go right to the multifamily route? And I know things change and the markets kind of swing. So what are mm -hmm. your thoughts there? Yeah. So if we take the sort of mantra today, there's obviously a, a very famous, um, content creator who talks about bigger is better, right? That's kind of his stick. And he's anti-single family homes, at least most of the time. Uh, I got to tell you, I own stuff like that and bigger is not better, right? It's absolutely not better, especially in a market where cap rates are compressed. People are overpaying. Uh, so I actually compare multifamilies and single family on the same spreadsheet every time. I, I will buy whatever's the highest yield. Um, I can tell you the worst deal I ever did was my first multifamily because I assumed the expense structure and the tenant turnover behavior was the same as a house. And I was uh, rudely awakened um, because again, multifamilies have a lot more expensive than single families. For example, water, yard care, uh, turnover is much higher in units that are attached versus, you know, single family homes. Um, yeah. So yeah, the, my worst deal was my first multifamily because I didn't, my calculation was just wrong. Because uh, I had a whole list of expenses that I didn't take into account. I think that's and a great point to bring up, Michael, because we I have a duplex that, and um, <clears throat> we've talked about this before, but I have a duplex that I have on a huge lot. And it's when I ran the numbers, you know, I didn't factor in that I had to pay an average of $60 a month cutting the grass. And I didn't factor <laughs> in that, that, that the water meter wasn't separated between the two units. So there's no way for me to charge the tenants. So right there, I'm talking $60 a month to do the, the lawn. And I'm talking roughly a hundred, $120 a month. So you're talking $200 a month that are my expenses that I cannot pass on to the tenants where in a single family home, all the utilities are on the tenants. So it's, it's really important to find out because $200 a month could be your entire cash flow. 
luckily I had some spread in the deal. Right. But you talked about how, what's the average uh, time frame that somebody lives in an apartment versus that lives in a single family home, because this is part of it too. And yeah. thing that factors in. Oh, it absolutely is. And, and again, I had the luxury of looking back over two decades now. So my average tenure of a single family home is eight years, just like 8.1 years. And a uh, apartment is two years, just on just, just under two years. And, and you get one turnover on a skinny deal. You're, you're negative for the year. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and that, that vacancy right there can really, it's something that people say, well, Oh yeah, I'll turn it over. But depending upon your market, it may not be three days that you turn it. It's not going to be three days that you turn something over. Right. It, it oftentimes takes a month and a month is one twelfth of your cash flow for the year. So it's, it's, there's just so many pros and cons, whether you're buying single, you're buying multifamily. And I think it's, it's really your personal, um, I guess it would be your, like just how your tolerance level. Well, you got to know the market. I mean, again, I've done this for 20 years. So houses were the best investment kind of Oh, two to Oh, six multifamilies were great. Oh, seven to 12. It was all rotten 13, 14, 15. Uh, then coming out of it, multifamily was best. Multifamily value add, you could not go wrong buying a multifamily value add 2015, 16, 17, 18. Those were the best years. You could be a horrible operator and make a lot of money. They started turning bad in 19, 20. They're just overpriced. That's so cool. I believe single families and multifamilies go in different cycles and everybody wants them in the same cycle. They're, they have different cycles. So you can you can bounce between them. I think that's a great point to, to bring up because right now there's so much speculation on what's going on with the market. And you're, you're kind of, you're, you're leading us in this direction. I'm curious to know what do you think's happening in this market? Because everyone has an opinion and I have my own too, but it's only because I speak to smarter people like you that help form them. So I'm really curious. You've been through two full, maybe three market cycles in 20, 25 years. So like, yeah. what do you think's happening right now in, in the market? Yes. So when you say the market, we've got a, I'll, 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 there's really two markets I generally talk about. There's the multifamily market commercial and then single family. Uh, so we'll do single family first. I think single family, generally speaking, has had a great year and a half. It was 15% last year, probably be seven or eight this year. I think single family is going to plateau. Uh, we're going to see a lot more supply on the market. We're going to see a little bit less demand. Uh, we're going to see tighter lending standards. Um, so I think it's, it's single family housing slowdown, no crash. Multifamily, on the other hand, is setting up to behave very badly. Multifamily is surprisingly, and I've actually talked to multiple apartment syndicators, it's, it's, the debt structure is wrong. Why did single family collapse before? Because they had two and two and 28 teaser loans. They had adjustable rate mortgages. The debt structure was toxic. What they're doing in multifamily now to get these stupid cap rates sub 5% is they're doing interest-only loans, they're doing bridge debt, and they're just betting on appreciation, which is never a good idea with real estate. Um, so I think multifamily is going to have a very big pain in 2023 and 24, uh, because once it's when the debt structure resets, right? The bad loans were written in 05, 06, but it, it's not until the two years were up in 07, 08 that the stuff started blowing up. Do you think that means that there's going to be some sort of crash. Can you define what you feel like that actually means? Because it could scare people to potentially not invest 
and and I think that me personally, I don't see a crash looming. I think that we're seeing 12, 15, 20% returns. It may stabilize, but that, but I'm okay with three or 4%. I bet on that yeah. in the beginning anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's, so let's define the terms. That's a great idea. So anything above zero is good, right? Anything with a positive number is good. I call a correction negative one to negative 10. Anything above 10, we can call a crash for this conversation. So single family homes, no crash, and only a correction in a couple of very small markets. No national crash. The national home appreciation for 2021 will be 7 or 8%. For 2022, it'll be 3 or 4 And 2024 will be 1% or 2%. So all positive numbers. Multifamily, that's a problem. Because multifamily is valued on what's called a cap rate. And if we get interest rate rise in the next two years, which I fully expect, uh, they're going to have to have higher cap rates. Uh, if they can't raise rents to match their higher uh, mortgage payments, their NOI will be hurt. And thus the value of their buildings could collapse. I did some very quick math with an apartment syndicator and we could whack 40% off the valuation uh, of 2020 purchases with very minor changes. So we could see a crash uh, in large apartment deals. Now, this is for the big boys. We're talking 100-unit deals and all of that. But still, a lot of people that watch podcasts and YouTube channels, they're limited partners in these things, right? They're, they're not the syndicator. They're the LP. And a lot of LPs have already lost their money. They just don't know it yet uh, because it's not gonna, the, the pain's not going to be felt for a couple of years. Got it. So this lends your itself to buying one rental at a time too, because you're really not referring to small multifamily necessarily in the nope. two, four, two, three, four unit range. Cause I, I, when I think multifamily, I think that, but I think you're, mm -hmm. it sounds like you're referring to major apartment complexes that are just yeah. overpriced based on the way the market's going. Yeah. Anything you can get 30 year money on you're good, right? Anything four units and below 30 year money. Good, right? Because what you don't want is the interest rate risk. If in the next two years, the average rate goes from 3% to 7 there will be plenty of apartments that go pop. Episode 52 with Josh and Ali Lupo from The Phi Couple. Well, that's the thing. It's like, know who you are and know your temperament yeah. because Josh was so stuck in the Excel sheet. And then we go on a house showing and this big guy opens the door for a showing and he slams the door in our face. And our realtor was like, oh, so you're going to collect rent from him every month. That's going to go well. And it's like investing in real estate is not easy, right? Like there are challenges and, and, and you get stronger and it's amazing, but like, it's not easy. So what is your heart? Is your heart like, something breaks, I need to fix it. Or like my tenants are giving me a heck of a time. Some people are cut out for it. Like we are investing where we're living. So we want to be comfortable. So number one metric for us that we always consider first location, you can't change the location. So if it's a bad location, I don't care how amazing the property is. So that's the first thing we look for. And then from there, um, price to rent is like a really, really big ratio. And like, you'll hear people talk about like the 1% rule. So in New York, we have like notoriously high taxes. Mm -hmm. If we only use 1%, we're probably cash flow negative or maybe at best neutral. So um, we do like to find something that has something like a 1.3 to 1.5% uh, rent to price ratio, 
which is getting harder because prices are going up. Um, but we're still hitting those metrics, which is pretty cool. Um, we do like to see uh, like $250, $300 a month cash flow after all operating expenses. Um, you know, and so we actually made a whole like post or whatever you would call it about this. So like uh, we only use like the house act we're in right now we use three and a half percent down FHA. We walked away with 17% equity. Like we like equity. We just don't want to buy it. So we, we look for deals that we can find hidden value in. We can force appreciation to. Um, so that, that's a really key metric for us because we don't want to be over leveraged, especially when you start getting into like, you know, top of markets. Um, so we do look for that 20% equity. We just hustle for, as opposed to putting out cash. I know it's pretty elementary, but can you talk about the rent to price ratio? Like just if yeah. anyone doesn't know what that is. Yeah, no, great question. So for instance, um, our first property, we bought it for 155 and it rents for uh, 2,275. So I think it's like a 1.47% price. Uh, so it'd be 2275. Sounds about right though. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I like had a memory. One point four six seven. Literally perfect. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. So so we and we like that because honestly, and and it's kind of like a bell curve. If you go too far and you start hitting that like two to three percent, like that's probably not a great area. Um, but if you're sub 1%, like those numbers can get pretty skinny real quick, especially if you have high taxes. So we like to try to aim for that, like one to 1.3 to 1.5% rent to price rent to price ratio. And we don't always buy them like that. Like the first property, like Ali was saying, like we bought it and it was very much under market. And we like that because we know we can, we can work on that. Like that's a problem we can easily solve with time. Um, but yeah, that's, that's rent to price ratio. Cool. What are your favorite ways to force appreciation? I know you touched on that. And like, we, we asked a few, a couple, um, in our last episode, you know, there are like three main buckets that they, they like to drive home and just kind of increase the overall, um, appreciation. So what do you guys use? We haven't done anything super crazy in terms of renovations, but really we're finding properties that need some extra TLC. You know, there's a lot of older homes in our area, so we're not buying like down to the studs, full gut rehabs, um, but we're buying properties where, you know, with this one, we did a kitchen remodel, we did all new windows, um, we did new flooring. So some projects we can do ourselves. Sometimes we hire them out, um, but really just doing those value add things that we know will add that value back into the property. And there's, there's certain amenities too, like our market, we know tenants really like. So like every property we buy has off street parking, mm -hmm. every property we buy, each unit has its own in unit uh, washer and dryer. Um, if it doesn't, we put it in yeah. um, dishwasher, dishwasher. Like they didn't have it. We added one. So yeah. just like those nice amenities that tenants like, um, you know, and then yeah, rent bumps too. So like a lot of times if we buy a property, that's, you know, a little bit old, a little bit tired and the rents are a little bit low, which right now there's a ton of landlords who have owned properties for a really long time. They haven't had to touch the rent in like 10 years because they're making hand over fist. We're like, all right, like those are problems we can solve. Right. It literally right. just happened to us. Yeah. We had a, we, had a, um, <clears throat> I, we, we love this tenant, by the way. She's awesome. But she's, uh, she's section eight. She's, she gets housing uh, yeah. authority yeah. assistance. 
and she hasn't had a rent raised in eight years and she knows it's coming. In fact, yeah. we sent her like a 40% increase. She was like, I know it. But the thing is, is we can only do it through the housing authority, like 3% a year. Yep. So Ryan and I, the other day, were like, dude, this guy just like, he's got a good tenant. Don't get me wrong. Like you don't want to mess it up, but I'm like, <laughs> it's $400 under market value. And like, we can only raise it 3% a year. So it's just like very, we had to abide by the laws, which was, it was interesting. Like we, we went and sh- walked in the paper, the, the notice of rent increase. And she's like, Oh, I knew this was coming. No problem. Yeah. Signed it. But then, you know, you bring it back to the, the housing authority and they're like, they just, we have some issues with them, but uh, they just like slap it. Nope. Not accepted yeah, on like the paper. Stamped, mailed so out. we call them. We're like, what's the deal? Like how, how wow. come they're like, uh, you know, it just, it's, t- you're making it too difficult for them to live. And we're like, she signed the paper. She said it was cool. <laughs> and and then basically we had to go back and forth with them. And all they had to tell us was we'll only approve it. If you, if you bump to 3%, we've been talking to them for six months and we could have saved a bunch of paperwork if they just told us. We wouldn't even tried to bump yeah. it to four hundred dollars if they just told us it could be only twenty eight bucks. We're yeah. like, all right, well, we'll just do the twenty eight bucks. Like, we want to work through it because we love this tenant. She's awesome. She's, we want her. She wants to stay here forever. She told us she would literally stay forever. Like, it's yeah. her home. So that's those are the tenants you want, and we don't right. we don't want to kick her out. So see, and what's what's really that's like a perfect example. Like, think about like your jobs or our jobs. Like, we'd have to work really hard and like we'd have to do a lot to make more income. Namely, we'd have to like spend more of our time with real estate. Like you control your income. And here it's like, you guys, whatever the percentage breaks down to get you to market. And you're in my mind, at least when I'm here on that, I'm like, you guys are, you guys have like cash in the bank. You just can't tap into it yet. And every single year you're going to be able to give yourself a pay bump, a 3% pay bump. And that's if she, if she doesn't move, if she moves and like, you can just whoop, go straight to the top. So like you guys have like a pool of money and right. every year, 3% more, 3% more, your income is going to go up. It's a very interesting way to put it. And I, I agree. It's like, and if you do that over a scale of yeah. 12, 15, 18, 20 properties, it's like yeah. you're, you're crushing inflation. You're just hundred it. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that's really cool. And what's cool is that that payment doesn't change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is cool. Unless it's more. Oh, our payment. Yeah. Sorry. The yeah. mortgage. Yes. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, oh my God. That's why you get, that's why you buy early. Don't even get us started on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we love that. You're about to get us we going. Are, I know. I know. <laughs> I don't want to lose my train of thought. You said rent bump. So do you have a, a, a strategic plan that you're going to raise it every year X percent and do your tenants maybe know this? I know you guys are a little early on in the stage of this, but it's, mm-hmm. it's a cool thought to like strategize. So it's funny you say that because, um, you know, when we first moved into our house, the apartment was well, well below market, but he was a great guy. He had two jobs. You never heard him. Um, he was a really nice tenant and he'd been there for five years. So we were like, we're new landlords. We're not rocking the boat. We're just going to keep him. Um, and honestly, we probably would not have raised rent if he hadn't had opted to move out. He just moved. He got married. He wanted to move out. So right now, like we have folks above us, um, they've been here for a year it's under market but again like they're great tenants we're not going to raise rent so really um i think for us i'd rather have like quality people that aren't giving us tons of headaches and we get along with them well and um you know if they want to be in our homes that's amazing but when they choose to pass on then we'll raise rent but again we're still new at it if you know we're doing this for a while and an apartment is at a certain amount then we'd probably want to systematize what yeah. we're doing in terms Josh of dissect this thing i, yeah. Know. Yeah. I see no. it along there. look at that <laughs> Like we, we never buy anything $400 below market. Right. Like, like 
we our max was we were probably like 175 below market on that first property but i think like sometimes like a hidden cost of real estate is vacancy and people grossly underestimate the cost of turnover so for right now like as two busy people um you know we are like super happy to get you know, have a buffer. Yeah. We could probably bump it up a hundred bucks or whatever. And maybe they don't move. Maybe they do move, but it's also like, I mean, we could either bump that rent and, you know, kind of risk it or whatever, or it's like, we, there's a lot of other levers we can do to make up that money elsewhere. Um, you know, and then once we kind of build those little oil wells, if you will, and we bump that rent even better. So, um, yeah, but we, we like to have like a little hedge, especially if, you know, markets get choppy. That wraps us up for 2021. Thanks so much again for your support. And we look forward to seeing you in 2022.